You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Skylight Books Crowdcast channel. Um, We are very excited to be here tonight with Benjamin Rosenbaum and Ted Chang um, to celebrate the paperback release of The Unraveling. Um, Thank you all for being here. Ted Chang's fiction has won four Hugo, four Nebula, and four Locus Awards and has been featured in the Best American Short Stories. His debut collection, Stories of Your Life and Others, has been translated into 21 languages. He was born in Port Jefferson, New York, and currently lives near Seattle, Washington. Benjamin Rosenbaum has been nominated for the Hugo, Nebula, BSFA, Sturgeon, and World Fantasy Awards. He is the author of the short story collection, The Ant King and Other Stories, and the Jewish historical fantasy tabletop role-playing game, Dream Apart. Originally from Arlington, Virginia, he lives near Basel, Switzerland, with his wife and children. Please join me in first giving um, Ben a huge welcome to the stage uh, while he reads from The Unraveling. Thanks. Thanks so much. Well, okay. Fifth was almost five, and it wasn't like Zir to be asleep in all of their bodies. He wasn't a baby anymore. He was old enough for school. Old enough to walk all alone across the habitation, down the spoke to the great and buzzing center of Fu. But he had been wound up with excitement for days, practically dancing around the house. Father Misisk had laughed. Father Smistria had chewed Zir out of the the supper garden. Father Frill had taken Zir to the bathing room to swim back and forth, back and forth to calm Zir down. Just before supper, he'd finally collapsed twice in the atrium and curled up on the tiered balcony. Father Arevio and Father Squell had carried Zer in those two bodies back to Zer room. He'd managed to stay awake in Zer third body through most of supper, blinking hugely, breathing in through Zer nose and trying to sit up straight as waves of deep blue slumber from Zer two sleeping brains washed through Zer. By supper's end, he couldn't stand up any longer and Father Squell carried Zer last body to bed. Muddy dreams sitting on a wooden floor in a long hall of her name being called, of realizing she hadn't worn her gowns after all, but was somehow humiliatingly dressed in Father Frill's golden bells instead, the other children laughing at her in dizziness. And suddenly, surreally, the hall being full of flutterbys, their translucent wings fluttering, their projection surfaces glittering. Then someone was stroking Fifth's eyebrow gently, He tried to nestle further down into the blankets, but the someone started gently pulling on Zir earlobe. Zee opens her eyes, and it was Father Squell. Good morning, little Cobblehedge, he said. You have a big day today. Father Squell was slim and rosy-skinned and smelled like soap and flowers. Fifth crawled into Squell's lap and flung Zir arms around them and pressed Zir nose between her bosoms. V was dressed in glittery red fabric, soft and slippery under Fifth's fingers. Squell was bald with coppery metal spikes extruding from the skin of her scalp. 
Sometimes Father Frill teased her about the spikes, which weren't fashionable anymore. And sometimes that made Father Squell storm out of the room because V was a little vain. Father Squell had never been much of a fighter, the other fathers said, but V had a body in the asteroids and that was something amazing. Squell reached over Fifth still in Verlap and started stroking the eyebrow of another of Fifth's bodies. Fifth sneezed in that body and then sneezed in the other two. That was funny and Z started to giggle. Now Z was all awake. Up, little cobblehead, Squell said, up. Fifth crawled out of bed, careful not to crawl over herself. It always made Zer a little restless to be all together, all three bodies in the same room. That wasn't good. It was because Zer's somatic integration wasn't totally successful, which is why he kept having to see pedagogical expert Pnim Moralazic Foundelli of Name Registry Nomadic Lamps 12. Pedagogical expert Pnim Moralazic Foundelli had put an awful nag agent in Fifth's mind to tell Zer to look herself in the eye play in a coordinated manner and do the exercises. It was nagging now, but Fifth ignored it. So he looked under the bed for Zer gowns. They weren't there. Fifth closed Zer eyes. He wasn't so good at using the feed with them open yet and looked all over the house. The gowns weren't in the balcony or the atrium or the small mat room or the breakfast room. Father Zarevio's mystery of Frill and another of Father Squell's bodies were in the breakfast room, already eating. Father Missisk was arguing with the kitchen. Where are my gowns? Fifth asked Zer agents, but the agents didn't say anything. Maybe Zer was, was doing it wrong somehow. Father Squells, he said, opening Zer eyes. I can't find my gowns and my agents can't either. I composted your gowns. They were old, Father Squell said. Go down in the bathing room and I'll get, get washed. I'll make you some new clothes. Fifth's hearts began to pound. The gowns weren't old. They just only came out of the oven a week ago. But I want those gowns, he said. Squell opened the door. You can't have those gowns. Those gowns are compost. Bathing. V snatched Viv Fifth up. One of Zer bodies under her arm, the wrist of another caught in Ver other hand. Fifth was up in the air, wriggling, and was held by the arm, pulling against Squell's grip, and was on Zer hands and knees by the bed, looking desperately under it for Zer gowns. They weren't old, Z said, Zer voice wavering. Fifth, Squell said, exasperated. That's enough for Kumru's sake, today of all days. V dragged Fifth, or as much as Fifth of Fifth as he'd managed to get a hold of, out the door. Another of Squell's bodies, this one with silvery spikes in its head, came hurrying down the hall. I want them back, Fifth said. She wouldn't cry. She wasn't a baby anymore. She was a big stayed child, and stayed don't cry. She wouldn't cry. She wouldn't even shout or emphasize. Today of all days, she would stay calm and clear. She was still struggling a little in Squell's arms. So Squell handled the struggling body off of himself as we came in the door. They are compost, Squell said, reddening in the body with the silver spikes, while the one with the copper spikes came into the room. They have gone down the sluice and dissolved. Your gowns are now part of the nutrient flow. They could be anywhere in full belly. They will probably be part of your breakfast next week. Fifth gasped. So he didn't want to eat their gowns? There was a cold lump in their stomach. Fifth caught their third body. Father Missisk came down the corridor double-bodied. He was bigger than Squell, broad-chested and square-jawed, with a mane of blood-red hair and sunset-orange skin traced all over with white squiggles. Missisk was wearing dancing pants. I'm going to skip a bit where Fifth's fathers basically argue and try to get um, get uh, Fifth under control. Bits trying to get a toddler dressed. Difficult. Uh, Smistria comes up and is arguing with Missisk and and uh, Squell. 
Come on, Fift, Miss Isk said coaxingly. Put Zer down, Smistria said. I cannot believe you are wrestling and flying about with a stage child who in less than three hours... Well, give it a rest, me, Miss Isk said, sort of threatening. He turned away from Fift and Squell and towards Smistria. Smistria stepped fully out into the corridor, putting her face next to Miss Isk's. It got like thunder between them, but Fift knew they wouldn't hit each other. Grown-up veils only hit each other on the mats. Still, he hugged Squell closer. One body squashed against her soft chest. One body hugging Squell's leg. One body pulling back through the doorway. Squeezed all her eyes shut and dimmed the house feet so he couldn't see that way either. Behind her eyes, Fift could only see the pale blue gowns. It was just like in her dream. She'd lost her gowns and would have to go wearing bells like Father Frill. She shuddered. I don't want my gowns to be in the compost, she said, as reasonably as he could manage. Oh, will you shut up about your gowns, Squell said. No one cares about your gowns. That's not true, Miss Isk said, boomed, shocked. It is true, Smistria said, and Fifth could see, feel a sob ballooning inside. She tried to hold it in, but it grew and grew and... Beloveds, said Father Grobberd. Fifth opens her eyes. Father Grobberd had come silently, single-bodied, up the corridor to stand behind Squell. He was shorter than Miss Isgins Mistria, the same height as Squell, but more solid, broad and flat like a stone. When Father Grobberd stood still, it looked like he would never move again. Their shift was plain and simple and white. Their skin was mottled creamy brown with the same fine golden fuzz of hair everywhere, even at the top of their head. Grobby, Squell said, we are trying to get there ready, but it's quite... Well, it's Grobert's show, Smistry said. It's up to you and Pip today, Grobert, isn't it? So why don't you get her ready? Grobert held out their hand. Fifth swallowed, then slid down from Squell's arms and went to take it. Grobert, Missisk said. Are you sure Fifth is ready for this? Is it really... Yes, Grobert said. Lindsay looked at Missisk, her face as calm as ever. She raised one eyebrow, just a little, then looked back at Fifth's other bodies. She held out her other hand. Squell let go, and Fift gathered herself, holding one of Robert's, Father Grobert's hands on one side, one on the other, and catching hold of the back of Grobert's shift. They went down to the bathing room. My gowns weren't old, Fift said on the stairs. They came out of the oven a week ago. No, they weren't old, Grobert said. But they were blue. Blue is a veil color, the color of the crashing, restless sea. You are a staid. And today you will enter the first gate of logic. You couldn't do that wearing blue gowns. Oh, Fifth said. Robert sat by the side of the bathing pool, their hands in their lap, their legs in the water, while Fifth scrubs herself soapy. Father Grobert, Fifth said, why are you a father? What do you mean? Father Grobert asked. I am your father, Fifth. You are my child. But why aren't you a mother? Mother Pip is a mother, and sees, um... You're both. Robert's forehead wrinkled briefly. Then it smoothed, and their lips quirked in the tiny suggestion of a smile. Uh-huh, I see. Because you have only one staid father and the rest are veils, you think that being a father is a veilish thing to be. You think fathers should be these and mothers should be these? Fifth stop mid-scrub and frowned. What about your friends? Are all your friends mother states? Are they all Z? Or are some of them V? Garbert paused a moment, then gently, what about your friend Umlish Menemu of Manathis cohort? Isn't Zer mother a veil? Oh, Fifth said and frowned again, well, what makes someone a mother? 
Your mother carried you in their womb, Fift. You grew inside their belly. You were born out of their vagina into the world. Some families don't have children that way. So in some families, all the parents are fathers. But we are quite traditional. Indeed, we are all Kumruists, except for Father Thurm. And Kumruists believe that biological birth is sacred. So you have a mother. Fifth knew that, though it still seems strange. Z'd been inside Mother Pip for 10 months, single-bodied, because their other two bodies hadn't been fashioned yet. That was an eerie thought. Tiny, helpless, one-bodied, unbreathing. It's their nut-sized heart drawing nutrients from Pip's blood. Why did Pip get to be my mother? Now, Robert was clearly smiling. Have you ever tried to refuse your mother Pip anything? Fifth shook their head solemnly. It doesn't work. Z's always the younger sibling. That meant the one who won the argument, but it also meant the littlest child if there was more than one in a family. Fifth wasn't sure why it meant both of those things. Robert chuckled. Yes, there was a little bit of debate, but I think we all knew Pip would prevail. Z had a uterus and a vagina enabled and made sure we all had penises for the impregnation. It was an exciting time. Fifth pulled up the feet and looked up penises. They were for squirting sperm, which helped decide what the baby would be like. The egg would sort through all the sperm and pick the genes it wanted, but the parents had to publish something or other to get the genome approved, and after that it got too complicated. If someone got a penis, they'd have one on each body, dangling between their legs. Do you still have penises? One on each body? Yes, I kept mine, Robert said. They went well with the rest of me and I don't like too many changes. Can I have penises, Z said. I suppose, if you like, Robert said, but not today. Today you have something more important to do. And now I see that your father has baked new clothes, so rinse off and let's go upstairs. That was it. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Hey, Ted. So, uh, Ben. Hey, Ben. So, uh, this novel, I, um, I guess I, um, uh, in some ways, I think of it as like maybe the, uh, maybe the most Ben Rosenbaumian <laughs> novel ah, I can imagine. funny! What, what a coincidence. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, well, because, you know, um, uh, well, I because mean, I think it, you know, I think it is uh, sometimes the case that, you know, when you know someone, uh, uh, you, you know, when you read their work, you, uh, the aspects of their personality from, you know, sure. personal interaction with them are not, you know, uh, Totally, you know, they're not uh, at the forefront mm -hmm. of the novel that, yeah. that, that, that the person's written. But I think that, you know, in this book, uh, you know, uh, many of the things that, you know, we hear you talk about are things, you know, uh, mm. you know yeah. featured prominently in this novel. Because, you know, when I, when I read the novel, I was thinking like, okay, so this seems to be about, a, this seems to be a novel about, uh, like, parenting and gender and reputation <laughs> economies and surrealism and um and maybe uh tallhood mm -hmm. 
And I was like, yeah, those are all, those are all wheelhouse. That, 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 you know, uh, ben is totally, totally interested yeah. in. Um, so yeah, so this, this is, it seems to be, you know, very much a, uh, uh, just a, a mixture of uh, all the things that, uh, that, that you love talking about. You, 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 you found a way to combine them all in, mm -hmm. into, into one novel. Yeah. Um, so, uh, okay. So, you know, Let's talk about let's talk about uh, um, let's start off talk talk about the the, the gender relations okay. in in this in this novel. Yeah. So um, I should say before you started on that, I just want to say what you said about putting everything in there is actually I we we were talking beforehand about about Clarion and I, I remember Octavia Butler saying that at Clarion basically that stuck with me that she was like it takes so long to write a novel that it, don't hold anything back like whatever you're currently obsessed with you just pour it all in there so i was definitely like following that direction i mean and you know yeah that uh, <laughs> that, uh you know, yeah that, that's fair although you know um uh I, although i do wonder like you know uh um you know, like if you, uh, what's your second novel gonna look like? You know, yeah, good okay. question. But I think that was her point: was pour everything in there, there'll be yeah. more later. Yes, like yes, your obsessions yes, will shift yes, over yes. time; you'll discover new layers to them. Yeah, whatever. Absolutely, absolutely. That's what she was saying: was don't hold anything yeah. back. There'll be plenty for the second. You know. Yes, yes, and you know, I, you know, I, anyway. I, I can totally, I totally, I can totally get behind that. Yeah. So, um, okay, so gender in this novel. So mm -hmm. there, so the, the two genders in this novel are are veil yep. and mm -hmm. stayed. Yeah. And um, I remember you once talking about this uh, a long time ago, because I because you've been working on this novel for a very long time. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's, had, it's, had, it's had many sort of uh, iterations and incarnations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I remember that you said at one point that you were trying to uh, you're trying to envision two genders that, you know, would not be read as male and female. Yeah. And um, you said that because like, you know, uh, the way we conventionally uh, think of male and female, you know, uh, as a very sort of rough approximation, we think of like uh, male and female as being uh, analogous to hard and soft. Mm -hmm. um, and like that's our uh, ideology around it. Right. As we have we've, we've decided there's a hard kind of person and a soft kind of person. Yes. And um, and you uh, and you said you were you wanted to try and make uh, two genders that uh, you you envisioned them as fast and slow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, like, I remember there was an uh, uh, at one point you had written an early draft of this novel and you got feedback from uh, Megan McCarran. Yes, crucial uh, feedback from Megan. Shout out to Megan McCarran. Um, and, uh, she, uh, I mean, I, my, my recollection is that, you know, uh, from what you said was that like, she had pointed out that you had sort of unconsciously like put like all the things like maybe that you, uh, you disliked about women into one of the genders that I, well, what she said was that I take, took all the things I disliked about being a man and stuck oh. that into the, into the female. Like I, like, because, and at that point, the, the. In 2012, when this conversation was happening, by the way, I did not yet believe that readers were gonna, I, I was writing the book with she and he, 
And I was like, well, we'll just arbitrarily assign she and he, because I just didn't think anyone could get through a book with neo pronouns. And I have to say, Liz Gorinsky, who is here tonight, my the editor was the for this book, is the one who insisted on my having the courage of my convictions. It was like, are you sure you don't want to actually just use neo pronouns? Because there's no way people are going to read, no matter which one you make he and which one you make she. But at the time, back in 2012, so eventually I did decide to do that, but which I'm very glad of now. But in 2012, I was like, well, there has to be a he and there has to be a she. And then what she was basically saying was, and I tried to mix up the, you know, like they were only theoretically, he had like, they were translated into English with these two pronouns, but really they were these two different genders. But Megan's reaction was like, you took all the stuff you don't like about being a, a, a boy and put it into the girl gender. And that's, <laughs> so her advice was first to switch the pronouns, which was the first thing I did. And I actually, after that, in order to keep myself honest, because I realized, I just realized like, it is impossible not to read through our lens of gender like you keep doing it. And so for a while, I was internally in the body of the text, writing it in neo pronouns and using Scrivener to compile two different PDFs, one with he, she, and the other with she, he. So I'd read it twice. And it was amazing how different, it, like how a scene would read totally differently if you flipped the pronouns, even though you nothing was happening diegetically in the text. I mean, it was very clear that we I wasn't changing their genders, but just changing the translation, like whatever, like just translating one of the pronouns which still referred to the same reference as, you know, using the word she was still totally to shift the reading. So um, eventually I came around to neo pronouns and I feel like, I mean, it is in some ways an impossible project. We can't help uh, reading through the genders that we have in a way. I mean, maybe, maybe now we can better, like the world has changed since even just in the last 10 years since I was having that conversation with Megan McCarran, um, I feel like it's easier, but um but at least I notice people slip up in different directions. Like at least when people are accidentally like talking about, you know, fifth, like I, I it, it at least splits the crowd whether people accidentally use she or he, you know, for fifth or for Shreya or for the characters in the book. So I'm like, at least, you know, it's it's destabilized, you know. And anyway, that's what the real goal of it is also to um, estrange and artificialize. Like ideally, when you're reading this book, once you get through the first, I'm so, I apologize to everyone for the, the work that you have to do to get into the book and the first 30 pages might be hard going. But once you've absorbed the conventions in the world and everything, ideally what happens is you um, acclimate, you acculturate so that in fact, you find it slightly embarrassing when staid people start doing, start acting overly veilish and veil, veilish people start acting. You sort of, you sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, acclimate to the conventions and you start treating these things as real. And then you go, wait a minute, this is absurd. There aren't really fast sort of people and soft sort of people and then maybe take that revelation home with you anyway to our world okay so um uh so okay so about the the uh more to follow up on the veil and the staid genders um yeah you have an opening epigraph in the novel. Yeah. And uh, there's a line in it um, which says that uh, every contest harkens back to that first contest over mm. the love of the parent when younger displaces older. <laughs> yeah. Right. And um, so, uh, so you know, it, it, that, that suggests to me that, you know, in some ways, like the veil and stayed, you know, uh, divide is you know it's a kind of sibling rivalry uh divide. interesting huh 
I, I had thought of birth order as being orthogonal to veil and state. I mean, it's random whether the firstborn is veil or state. And, 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 and birth order has a lot to do with class in the society. So there's a lot, you know, like ladderborn tend to be writ. It's a reputation. It's a pride economy, actually. But ladderborn tend to be rich. They don't have money, but rich. And elderborn, poor and aggrieved and so on. Um, but I guess it is. In a way, it, it does feel a little like a, the, the relationship between the genders does feel a little. I mean, that, there is a way in which it's like a sibling rivalry. Partly it's that they're there. I wanted to use sibling rivalry as the, as one of their sort of fundamental paradigms that they that they through which they see the world. Um, I feel like a lot of times, you know, I wanted to make up a new society and I wanted the things in society to feel both strange and also familiar. So I wanted not to take totally absurd things that had no basis in our experience, but I wanted to take moments that we, there are things, there are emotions that like are typical of humans that people often feel, one that, that, that a human could experience, but some of them your culture like elevates to this really important major feature that it builds all this ideology around and other, other ones it doesn't. So there are cultures, like if you go back to, you know, there are cultures where like jealousy, like it's a natural feeling like you're, you have a lover and that lover takes an, another lover. Now, a natural thing you might feel is jealousy. And there are cultures where like a natural thing to do then is like have a war, right? Like that's such an important definition of like that the society is based on that, like you should have a blood feud. And there are other societies, I was reading about like pre-contact Hawaii, where, you know, basically the general attitude is, you know, grow up. Like, of course, everybody feels jealous, but like that, you know, as as you mature, you should be able to master that emotion and it should be no big deal if your lover takes another lover. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, human societies can do all kinds of things with what emotions they center or don't. So I wanted to take this emotion, which, you know, that's re the feeling of like, uh, you know, when you're the older sibling and the younger sibling arrives and all of a sudden the parents are paying attention to them. Like, that's a real feeling. But we don't, we acknowledge that that exists, but we don't make that like the cornerstone of society. It's not something we particularly mythologize. They've like mythologized that. The way we mythologize mother love, right? Like mothers are like these self-sacrificing, like you're as soon as the, the, the mother's love for the baby is this pure, which is something that many parents feel, not all the time. Sometimes you're like, my kid is a pain in the ass. And sometimes you're like, oh my God, my heart is full of love. And, but you know, we've decided that that's a, both a central and also a gendered emotion and we're going to build a whole edifice around it anyway so i was like what if they just and i was watching my kids grow up and birth order seemed like such a central fact of their universe right it's like that you know when they would watch shows where there was an older sibling and a younger sibling that was a bigger deal than gender my daughter totally identified with arthur the aardvark even though the older sibling was a boy and the younger sibling was a girl but she was totally the older sibling because her, the fact of her being an older sibling was such a much more central fact of her existence than that of being a girl like being a girl that sure she noticed that sometimes but being an older sibling was like a full-time job so you know i was just i wanted i was like what if a society made that more central yeah <clears throat> organizing um, metaphors jed says in the chat yes an organizing metaphor for the for their social world so um, uh, I'm curious, uh, have you heard of uh, Frank Soloway's book, Born to Rebel? No. Because um, uh, his he, uh, he was a psychologist. He, uh -huh. he, I mean, he is a psychologist. He had this thesis that um, uh, um, that firstborns tend to be uh, more uh, sort of conservative and mm, uh, interesting. Uh, uh, 
younger borns tend to be you know more later later borns tend to huh. be more uh revolutionary and he so he <laughs> he 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 uh he had this whole book where he um offered a this statistical argument that uh where he tried to characterize uh famous people in history mm-hmm, you know like mm-hmm. whether they were you know sort of trying to maintain the status quo or yeah. return the status quo well and it'd be really and, interesting and, to and then find to a look... correlation to their birth order well, and it would be very interesting to look at whether they lived in primogeniture societies, right? So if he's going famous people in like British history in which the eldest literally inherits everything, it's like, well, they have a hell of a, you know, if you compare that to, I don't know, Mongolian ultimogeniture, like, is that true in societies where the youngest inherits? Like, I don't know. Like, you know what I mean? It's sort of, and I think that we also, um, I, I, you know, I just think this generation, you know, like at the moment we live in a world where, it's not that inheritance isn't a big deal because it's still a big deal, but it's certainly there's this whole emphasis on like the emotional life of little kids that I think wasn't such a big. Anyway, I, yeah, I, I that seems like really interesting data and also probably very rooted in like what society and era we're talking about, right? Anyway. Well, I mean, I think uh, uh, his his thesis received a lot of pushback, uh, but you know, <laughs> no it, 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 it was you know it. it, it <laughs> It was you know, like an interesting thesis, yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it just seemed like it was just something that I was yeah. reminded. And of. I mean, I'm less interested uh, in whether it's true, and I'm more interested that they think it's true, right? Like uh, this, this book is full of a lot of things. That it's like, well, they think that's true, right? I, I kind of think it's a lot of what they think is true. I think is absurd, but like, but I would, wouldn't I? <laughs> I mean, I'm not from there, so you know, for them, it's as real, and that's the kind of game that the writing that to play in writing it in a way is like, can we make this feel as real as our own fundamentally absurd notions? Okay, so um, uh, all right, so okay, here's here's another uh, topic. Um, So, uh, Fift, Fift is, uh, so Fift's mother is a banker historian mm-hmm. and Fift is an apprentice banker historian. Yes. Yeah. And, um, uh, and I, I, I think, you know, like, it's not entirely clear what a banker historian does, <laughs> you know, it's a, uh-huh. you know, I, th- uh, I think you know you you, you kind of hint at it, but you don't you yep. know really yeah play that. But I guess what it seemed to me is that uh, um, uh, I feel like you know it uh, it is tied to a conversation that you and I have had um, about uh, one of your previous stories, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the guy who worked for money. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, which uh, addressed the question of uh, you know some of the like some of the things issue uh, some of the issues raised by like uh, David Graeber's book Debt mm-hmm. and yeah um, that was a big influence on this book yeah Graeber's for Debt the first five thousand years yeah um, and the idea that, uh, that you know, <laughs> perhaps a, this book should be called Debt the next half a million years no kidding all right go on. <laughs> Uh, I mean, uh, well, which, you know, would, uh, uh, that, 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 you know, considering that his book is like 600 pages and it only call and it only covers a mere 5,000 years. Yeah. And, only and, covers 5,000 years. That's right. And, you know, here you're covering, you know, a hundred times that, you know, yeah, exactly. yeah, you know, 
uh, that would make you sort of just a uh, uh, just the master of brevity. Yeah, yeah, which is how everyone but, thinks of me. Indeed. <laughs> um, uh, but so 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 in you know in uh, one of the things that Graeber talks about in his book is how you know sort of before there was money. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, people, uh, people re remembered what they owed each other, and mm -hmm. uh, that was a uh, that was sort of one of the fundamental uh, ways that they uh, understood their social relationships. You know, and and they, they either did or didn't quantify. I mean, there's a difference between I owe you exactly this much, and if I give it to you, we're quits. And like I owe you and you owe me, and that relationship of mutual debt will obtain forever. You know what yeah. I mean? Which is a lot of relationships in the. Which is why you don't um, tell people how much a birthday present is. Like the the difference between like a gift isn't a gift if it's you know what I mean. If it's like, well, that's exactly eighteen dollars and three cents. You know what I mean? That there there are taboos around that because it's essentially like if it can be if it can be made even and settled, then it's not a bond. And our world is run on this kind specific kind of transaction which does not which by is designed for strangers to relate to each other like it's designed for low information context for strangers to be able to perform a transaction and then and then have no bond afterwards it's just yes. you know, that's yeah. the world we yeah. live in i mean yeah gray gray graber says that yeah, yeah. money yeah. money was invented. That's thesis. yeah money was invented yeah. to uh to allow you to square accounts with someone you never intended to see again Exactly, exactly. Particularly if you're a mercenary and you've just melted down all the gold in a temple, basically, Graeber is saying. Yeah. 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 And so so part of the, I think where you're going with this part of both of those stories uh, is, well, what if essentially information technology allows us to be in a high information situation, with, even with distant strangers and therefore like does something that if money is a hack for dealing with um, for doing spot transaction, spot transaction barter with strangers. Like once we live in a rich information world where everybody knows everything about everybody, does that change the equation? Do we then have, you know what I mean? Does exchange economy stops uh, being as much of a central mechanism? Maybe. I mean, and so, you know, so that's, and, and thus you get perhaps banker historians is that, i have is to that... tell you that there is a glossary at the end of the book I mean, not everyone yes. finds it but it does yes. tell you what a banker historian is ahem banker historian a professional responsible for emotional accounting formalizing the story of a person or institution's emotional state so as to optimally influence their ratings um <laughs> yeah yes yes uh i saw that but uh, i guess um okay so uh, and yeah, you know that you know although like uh, I guess you know I maybe the reason I'm pushing on this because like yeah, I'm not sure like <laughs> is that is that because uh, like it that is that is not uh, as clear to me from reading the the novel um, yeah. but also because I guess I wonder about the relationship between what I take to be that job description and this other thing that you know, like you and I have talked about about um, mm -hmm. sort of uh, recording. Uh, uh, social relationships yeah. uh, through you know, what yeah. people owe each other. Yeah. Yeah, and well, I, in other words, I think that I mean, I think much like in the guy who worked for money, in which there are these mechanisms like hubbub or whatever, where 
computers are helping everybody decide what they think of everybody else. And therefore your transactions with people are more like your transaction with someone you know very well and have a strong opinion about whether they should have that thing or not than they are like with a stranger. Um, uh, and similarly here, I mean, it's again, and both of them are mutually panoptic societies, sort of everybody's watching everybody else. And so there's this vast amount of data about what everybody, you know, which everyone uses to judge each other. Um, both of these stories are in some regards having to do with living in Switzerland, which is a very um, communal society in which everyone, it's very gossip driven. I mean, not gossip, that's that's mean. And maybe that's not the right word. Uh, there's a lot of social control and, but also mutual care that people fall through the cracks much easier in America. So I'm not throwing Switzerland under the bus, but anyway, um, but it's partly being a, an immigrant that it's it's to observe Switzerland it's like a alien landscape for me. Anyway, um, uh, the the idea of the banker historian is that you would naturally try to spin that, right? Like, so everybody in the world, there's like all these ratings. They have all observed what you're doing. They're forming opinions, but you would definitely want like a spin doctor, like a PR person, who's going to like reframe and clarify and quantify, like retell the story of your like emotional states and behaviors and everything in a way that will maximally you know put your best foot forward so so it and and a lot of like the there's some kind of transactional emotional transactionality where where you know they they actually don't think of it strictly as a reputation economy they it, in fact Thave says it's not a classical reputation economy they, it's a pride economy so it has something to do with the notion is that somehow when you encounter someone there's there's an emblematic scene where they're trying to get on a bridge and the or to a to a to a lift like onto an elevator and the elevator operator is basically like having this showdown with them emotionally where the elevator operator is going to decide and sort of like someone is going to submit like either the elevator either they're going to be turned away or the elevator operator is going to let them on the elevator and every transaction is some kind of contest like between siblings right like where it's like who's going to win this game of emotional chicken. Um, they actually think of it more like that, whereas the guy who worked for money is more of a strict reputational economy. Um, anyway, but that has a lot to do, with, and so a lot of it is like your internal state. And there's the bit where there's the stock market guy, Zango Django, and it's about people betting on their own, they're, they're taking bets on their own like likelihood of, of, of falling apart emotionally. Like there's a way in which there's a very meta thing where like your emotional states are, are very visible and Therefore, if you, um, so partly the banker historian is about external spin, which is what it would be in a reputation economy, but partly it's about the story you're telling yourself about what happened and therefore how you feel about it. And there's like a feedback loop where how you feel about it affects how the next transaction is gonna go. Something like that. But I mean, you're right to point to like, do I really know where, what it is? <laughs> I couldn't design this. I mean, if, if somebody was like, okay, Ben, we're, we're going to actually do this. What do banker historians do? I don't act. You know what I mean? Like there's a way in which it's definitely uh, the kind of science fiction where you were gesturing beyond, right? It's not where you're specifying exactly. It's where like this association of words is, is gesturing at something. I'm not, I, it's not pure surrealism. Like I think there's a there there in banker historian, but it's, um, I don't know that I'm meant to understand it fully. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, you know, oh, sure, sure. I, I, I get that. Um, but I guess uh, uh, I had sort of thought that uh, maybe one way to, you know, to articulate this is that, you know, um, uh, 
I feel like you know, um, the, the role of banker historian is uh, almost like uh, the way the way that you have it described in your in your glossary. It, it might almost be like a uh, like a like a, a lawyer you hire. Like every, like like there mm -hmm. you, people would have competing banker historians. Oh yeah. As opposed to you know mm. um, there being a you know like you'd yeah. have you'd have your your own banker historian to sort of argue your case in a fashion. You know, well, that's as opposed to. I mean, although arguing a case implies a one on one. This is this. It's not really necessarily. A, I mean, that might happen in a transaction where you have a specific dispute with one person. But this is partly about after the fact, after all those transactions, which were individual face offs happened, you're also broadcasting to the world. So when someone enters a transaction with you, when they go to this face to face with you, like like they do with when they confront the people like Hortrun and and Credoria, they go in knowing a lot about that person, what their status is, what their, you know what I mean? They go in to have this confrontation to try to get someone to apologize, knowing a bunch of stuff about them because there's a rich record about them and all these people taking bets on them, whether they're going to prosper or not. Like everyone is so everyone is so under the microscope the way that a famous person is today, like, you know, uh which is sort of a, an easy prediction, the democratizing, like there's so many ways in which people in, in many ways in which we in 2022 live in ways that only famous people did in, you know, 1980, like every, you know, right. Like that's an, ob at, th at this point, that's kind of an obvious observation, like with social media and everything, like everybody's 15 minutes, whatever. Um, but uh, it was clever when McLuhan said it in the sixties. Um, but, but it's all, in other words, the way a banker historian works in the book is more like a CPA than a lawyer. So it's more like you're preparing your annual report and you are publishing it to the world and it shows all the transactions and checks all the dots, all the I's and checks all the T crosses, all the T's and, and produces a coherent accounting. And then when you're in some transaction with someone where you want something from them and they want some from you and there's some kind of struggle, like you've got that to back you up. You've got this record of like who you are and what you've done and, 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 and how that is that tells the story. Um, you know, so it's an emotional narrative, but it's also kind of very quantitative because there's all this number crunching behind all of this stuff about reputation and, and emo their emotions are very quantified in this world. So it's it's like a CPA for your emotions. Okay, okay, okay. all right. Okay, so, um, okay, here's a question I have about, um, so the the characters, almost every character, they are multi-bodied. Mm -hmm. They yeah. have uh, like three bodies, or you know, or maybe more. And mm -hmm. um, uh, there is a um, in in one again at the sort of the appendix material at the at the at the, at the end. There's yeah. a note which says that. Uh, uh, that this that this uh, instituting uh, many bodies for each individual mm -hmm. that was like uh, it's implied that that was a deliberate attempt to uh, prevent <laughs> uploading. <laughs> that note is there for you, Ted. <laughs> well, uh, um, well so, yes. okay. So, like, I'm asking, like, what's that about? How's that? Yeah. How, yeah. You know, um, uh, how features. Does, how, how how I'm going to ask the question. How does sure. how does you know how, how does, does that. Well, how does that how does that prevent uploading, especially considering that like the amount of infrastructure that you know, sort of implied mm -hmm. in between like sort of sharing yeah. states between multiple bodies that would be mm -hmm. so much easier to do if you were virtual, it, like if were if you were digital. But, um, like so, it seems like like if if this polysomatic you know 
uh, version of identity was uh, was considered desirable, that would I, I feel like wouldn't that encourage uploading rather than different implementation? Know? So so I mean so so partly more if you're interested in this question, which is sort of in the Thave bit and then in the notes at the end, and not that much in this book, um, it is much more central to bereft. I come uh, for, I come to a nameless world, which is the sequel-ish to the unraveling that was a story in Asimov's last year or the year before. Anyway, there's a short story. You can find it on the website, Bereft I Come to a Nameless World. Um, and that is specifically about Thave and Siob, who appears in the end, uh, talking about this. And the original narrative, like the, like some of the bones of this book that didn't make it much into this book, but that are in that story and maybe some other forthcoming stories, maybe if I get them into shape, um, uh, had to do with Thave is a, a consultant for civilizations, right? Thave is the one who they meet who's been, who's like, you know, 50,000 years or actually half a million years old, but like has been on the planet for, for 20,000 years. And, um, and they discuss, you know, all these, uh, Thave is, you know, I wanted to, you know, often we have aliens as like secret nemeses who are controlling the world or they're like invading or they're, Thave is just like a person who has a job who lives on this planet. And it's like one of the few aliens on the planet, but everyone knows who Thave is. You can look Thave up and the equivalent of Wikipedia. But um, but Thave's job is to nudge the society and to try, Thave tries to have an influence on the society. And so when Thave says, I encourage this trend, Thave is partly talking about, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of like, uh, one of the, one of the spiritual ancestors of the book, which in which I'm in dialogue and, and not always um, agreement is foundation, right? So there's a way in which Thave is a very foundation, second foundation kind of like person trying to influence the grand sweep of history, right? And um, and one one thing one thing Thave tries to do is shift sort of cultural trends and whatever. And the model is that this is a very culture and technology and so on is very chaotic. So like you might end up in a totally different place based on like shifting conditions like because it's a positive feedback loop right the culture changes the society which changes the desires which produce the desire to create the technology so you might end up with hovercrafts or you might end up with you know what i mean like we it's not a it's not a deterministic like tech tree right so the way that they are multi-bodied is not that they have a digital representation of consciousness and then import that into another body it's actually that because there's no there's no privileging of the brain they're just as interesting as replicating the state of your liver as the state of your brain right like there's a there's a there's a what what there are little machines in every cell that just try to sync up the state with the other cells they don't attempt to construct a model they don't attempt to they they um they try to sync all the right so if you get punched like there's a bit where where you think where Fifth can tell what body Shreya was in a fight in because bruises um, travel, but lacerations don't. So like if you if, if there's a, a tear in the skin that doesn't get replicated, that's like that's too complicated. The, but the, the cells that are bruised will try to bruise, you know, they'll like average out the state between the, the bruised cells on that arm and the not bruised cells on that arm. So it's a very, we were talking, I was just re-listening to our, uh, the, the that was just released because we just put it out the podcast that you and I did for for uh, Mohan Raj and Rosenbaumer Humans Speculative Literature Foundation, and uh, we were talking about the you know our anti singularitarian feels and the irreducibly embodiedness of consciousness, and um, 
which is not to say that bodies are static or you know like uh they they're very malleable but 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 there's always a body in some sense and and so it's this very embodied version of consciousness it's like okay well you want to be more than one place at once you want to live forever you want to expand your thing what if we do this right what if we what if we take your actual body and make it map to this actual other body which is very different than saying let's abstract yourself to like this notional version of yourself, which can live in a purely simulated world and have anything it wants. And the, the thing that Thave and Siab are particularly terrified of is that they are not so much interested in the longevity of individuals, but in the longevity of societies. And that it turns out in this universe that like fully virtual societies happen and they're very brittle. Like everything goes really fast and there's very little friction and you can create the world as you like and you deviate very quickly from like, you know, like you, 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 you wander very quickly in like cultural space and then like one bam beam takes the whole thing down. Like everything's just a wash of bits after, you know, like it's, it's amazing if one lasts a hundred years. So for them, that's like, they're, they're, they're terrified of, of situations in which societies are going to all upload themselves and that's, and use up all the resources doing that. And so whoever's, whatever peons don't get uploaded are going to starve and whatever people are in the, the big Mariashka brain will uh, have a lot, have a lot of fun until like, suddenly there's a fad for extinguishing yourself and then there's nothing left. Anyway, I'm not saying this is true, but in this world, like that's the thing they're worried about is this sort of fragility of the, and so, and so they, they like the, uh, you know, so, so, and there's this sense that Thave can't just stop them from doing it, but he can kind of nudge in another direction. V can kind of, Z, Thave's gendered state, can nudge in another direction and end them up in a, uh, in a um, uh, yeah, in a, in a, in a in something that that you know the same sort of fear of death, desire, greed for experience, all that stuff can like can like you know kind of like a Betamax VHS situation. Like it's like well you know maybe maybe I can't uh, keep you from doing something, but offer this alternative. And like, you'll go off into that. You know what I mean? The way to, the way I made it, that's not the best analogy. It's probably a better analogy of like two competing technologies that were actually fundamentally different and one of them stole the other's thunder. I feel like I should have a, a good analogy for this. It's like, I don't know. It's like, um, uh, maybe electric cars and internal combustion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, like a, like a Tesla era. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Like internal combustion just got enough of a, of a, of a push ahead that, that, that took over or like alternating current or whatever. One of those moments in history where it's like, this just gets the, the first, first mover advantage. This just gets the, 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 the push behind it and the, the wind gets sucked out of the other thing. So that's kind of what Thave was going after with this. Well, okay. So um, <laughs> I, think, I think we're, we're, we're getting the hook. It might be. Yeah. We might well, get the hook. No, you more than welcome to ask another question. I can, I can, um, go away again. Maybe one, one more. more for, one more question from Ted and then yeah, I, do, I don't know if we have a lot from the audience. Okay. Or... Okay. All right. I, okay. Let me ask, let me ask one more. Uh, okay. So, um, uh, so one thing I, uh, uh, I wondered about is that, so the, the, you know, in this society that you need to pick, you know, people have, you know, very long lifespans, you know, they live yeah. hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, the scenes where we see like, uh, fifth, you know, we see fifth, uh, uh, which is very young. And then, uh, like, uh, 10 years later, we see fifth sort of as a teenager. 
mm -hmm. and then you know a couple decades later later we see fifth you know yeah. as a as an adult yeah and and so fifth's behavior in all those they map very i i i was able to map them very readily onto like you know yeah. young child teenager sure. adult as i recognize them yes and so well, I know where you're going with this. Well, yeah. let me let me ask the question. Yeah, go ahead. So, go ahead. You know, so my question is, you know, like, um, uh, if if someone can expect to live, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, would mm -hmm. their teens be the the emotional equivalent of our teens? You know, would their thirties be the emotional equivalent of our thirties? Why? Because, like, you know, and as as an example, this is like, I mean, as a counter example. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, in uh, David Marasek's uh, novella, we were out of our minds with joy. You know, uh, characters are very long lived, and uh, you know the characters they uh, the protagonists they have a kid. They get permission to have a kid, and they're getting advice on parenting because you know it's so rare. Mm -hmm. you know, people need need, need you know, sort, of, sort, of, sort of training. And one one thing they're told is like, your child will probably be an adolescent, you know, psychologically for about seventy years. Because because mm -hmm. that's just that's just what happens when you live that long, and yeah, you know, I don't buy it. Okay, so so I so I, yeah, I, the, as I was gonna, the, and I feel like that's the standard. Like I am an elf, so uh, of course I live a thousand years. So my teenage years are the next two hundred, and I'm like, I don't I don't think that's how it works. I think that's I think that's far too simplistic, right? I mean, I think that's I think that's not what we see. I mean, the, the fact is that, um, you know, I. I I, there is some of that. Okay, so there's two things that are happening. One thing is that, I mean, I don't want to spoil too much in the book, but there's a little bit of a of a cheat in terms of how the plot goes that the fifth that we see at the end of the book is more having the experience of someone that chronological age closer to our world than the average person in fifth world would have because of what happens with fifth, right? So if we're talking about the end of the book, then most people who are the age that fifth is at the end of the book are still, you know, are definitely in some ways adolescents in terms of their situation, still very much under their parents' care, uh, right? Like you're, you're, the first century of your life, you are meant to uh, be, I mean, it's a little bit different for states and veils, but like your first 22 years, you're really a child. And then, the, and then between 22 and like around, by 100, you should really have left the nest and be, doing some stuff on your own and, and forming your own, living your own life. But but there's a large range in there from 20 through. So plenty of 80 year old stades are still living at home. Some 50 year old veils, veils are already heading out on their own. So yeah, in some, in some sense, there is a, in terms of the condition of your life. And we see that today, right? Like, so, so people who were 14 uh, in biblical times were like having babies and going off to war. And now 14 year olds are, uh, you know, not anywhere near becoming independent. And indeed, you know, plenty of, you know, now millennial, post-millennial, like plenty of people at 20 are still under their parent. Like we're going back to extended families that are longer, have longer ages. And that's happened, you know, different. It's been different in different throughout history in lots of different ways. But you go back and read Romeo and Juliet and, you know, uh, look at the course of the Middle Ages. Look at the, Yes, they were having babies and going off to work 14. Also, they were 14. Like they seem 14. They also were going off to war. So there's a, you know what I mean? Like there's a, there, it's not as simple as you just linearly scale it out. Like there, like when fifth is going through puberty, fifth is going through puberty. They're biologically, they, they didn't, they didn't just linearly extend biology. So you hit puberty at 50, like they're still hitting, you know what I mean? They're still undergoing the biological changes that they're undergoing. And then at a certain point they just start 
maintaining their bodies and having, you know, they, they just fix things. They're not, they're not, they're aging normally. They're not senescing, right? So they, so they are, uh, so they're having their, you know what I mean? Like in many ways, the emotional life of a teenager is the emotional life of a teenager and their material conditions may be different if they expect to be in school for another 20 years or if they're already expected to be earning a living and having babies. But but there's a way in which there's stuff that's not different. So I I I feel like I was always I was always annoyed by the elf thing in a way where it's like I'm a 200 year old elf because it's like what have, you are a person you've been learning you've been experiencing. Did the do all the experiences just slow down? Like your adolescent rebellion was just like mom I won't do for 20 30 40 years. Do you know what I mean? I just I don't buy it is what I'm saying. I don't buy a linear scaling. I think it's actually interesting to look at. Because I think that's more, you know, it's not just like when our when our lives were shorter that they were just like a compressed version of of what we do now. No, they were fundamentally different because precisely because teenagers with teenagers hormones and teenager and in many ways teenager like feelings were in a very different economic and political and social condition that gave rise to very interesting things. And so, uh, you know, I, I uh, yeah, so 15 year old fifth is really 15. And expected to stay at home for another 80 years, which is different. Okay, okay. Um, all right. I think we will, uh, you and I could argue about this <laughs> at length, you know, but uh, it, it's time. To, Looking it's forward time to, to it. To... Can, can we have a, like an extended version of the event that's just a big argument? Hey, sure. The first question that we have is from Sarah, who says, um, how do you feel that the economics of the unraveling interacts in our cultural discourse with the new financial financial instruments like NFTs? Huh. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I feel like uh, I'm trying to. I, I'm struggling to say something intelligent about this. The the. Um, there's a way in which like the wackiness of like the 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 weird efflorescence of things we're seeing like with crypto and everything um you know in which we're boiling the planet quicker to do really inefficient programs so we don't have to trust each other at all is really interesting and it's kind of like it's sort of in some ways it's kind of like the opposite trend right it's it's i'm sort of imagining a society in which there's all this like rich information and so you know so much about strangers that you are doing this reputation economy style thing that's like an interesting concept but of course like that's not where we are right now in the precipitous decline of human civilization we're we're actually like just we've got if there if the book imagines us putting the brake on like um a world of mistrustful strangers like the real world is slamming the accelerator on a world of mistrustful strangers right and that's interesting i mean it's very interesting i don't know certainly there is a i don't know certainly it feels um uh there's a there's a lovely weirdness to it i mean i mean i i i both fear crypto because it currently has like the energy expenditure of Argentina and rising in a slope steep curve and also I feel like it has 
a lovely like it's it's like you know it's one of those things that's now reality that would have been like thrillingly hilariously weird science fiction 20 years ago right um so uh yeah i don't know i feel like the i feel like um the and it's also the the this predominant i mean symbolically i feel like there's also this predominance of the virtual and digital world over the over the physical right so nfts specifically like the nft of the mona lisa which is somebody having like <laughs> like you can make an nft of the mona lisa i think and sell it and it's not leonardo da vinci did leonardo da vinci paint the mona lisa who made the nft you could just go i don't know like it's a very it's a it's a it's a, it's it's an it's a it, it feels like a sign of this dominance of the virtual over the over the physical um so i guess it's something that would make thave and siab nervous if they were here <laughs> that's my answer <laughs> um, thank you uh okay we have a question from cliff that you answered i think a little bit after it was asked but um it says ben are you planning to revisit this universe in future works if so what new aspects do you want to explore Yes. Well, I should say that there are, I believe, two other things out there which are in this universe-ish. One of which is, as I said, Bereft I Come to a Nameless World, which is in Asimov's, if I'm not forgetting anything. The other of which was in a, a funny little magazine called Sci-Fi Journal, spelled P-H-I, so like Science Philosophy Journal, um, which really loves you to just throw world building at it. Like they love found, found text stories. So I just gave them some world building from Reef 6, which is a place that Siob goes um, while Fave is writing that letter to Siob that's at the end of this book. Um, or no, long before that. Anyway, whatever. It's one of their adventures. Um, I do feel like it would be interesting. I do want to, in the prehistory of this book, I actually, Siob was the original protagonist of this book back before when it was called The Resilience. And I cut 40,000 words and solved fired Siob because we were having a labor dispute and uh, Siob wouldn't do what I wanted Siob to do and made Fifth, who was originally local color, the protagonist. So that's actually the prehistory of this book. And I I am, so Bereft I Come to a Nameless World is some of those 40,000 words salvaged and I do intend to salvage some more of it. I don't actually know if, and I, I sort of vaguely have an idea that more, I, I had a vague idea of a sort of what could happen next next. But I don't know, I don't know that there's actually, I don't have a handle on like a story about fifth when fifth is 500, which could happen, but I don't, I don't know. I don't have a glimmer of that yet. So yeah, so there's some pieces and I don't know, might tie back together, but I don't know what I'm doing. Well, thank you so much. Um, that is the time that we have, but I just want to say thank Thank you so much, Ben and Ted, for the conversation. And that I want to, I will be listening to the podcast now, um, as should everyone else. Um, and thank you to everyone who's here in the audience. Um, we can't see you, but we know that you're there. Um, and yeah, do you have any final thoughts or questions before we say goodnight? Uh, I just really appreciate both of you and everybody for coming and for doing this. And uh, yeah, just um, I, I uh, this was really fun. Um, and I wish we could just keep going. 
Is there a convention in the States that you'll be attending, Ben? In the, Good you know. question. I I am pro I'm sadly not going to make it. I'm I'm probably I'm I'm think I'm maybe going to be virtually at Worldcon. I'm not going to be able to be there uh, physically. Probably the next one is. I try to get to Wiscon every year, so here's hoping that next year I will be at Wiscon. Um, how about you, Ted? Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I'll probably go to ICFA in uh, next year, the International Conference on the Fantastic and the Arts uh, in, in March. Uh, but that's not one you've ever been to, I, I think, Ben. No, I've never been to ICFA because it never works out timing-wise. But mm, who knows? Maybe. Could happen one of these times. Uh, yeah, my, my, my kids are growing up. So once they are... I'm not as tied to the Swiss school vacation calendar once Noah's graduating. So I have another year of being tied to the Swiss school vacation calendar. And then maybe March will be as accessible as May. So could happen. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Thank you both so much. And this is available for replay um, at the same link where you joined tonight so feel free to share it and watch again as necessary <laughs> yeah thanks so much <laughs> good night all thank you thank you for listening to the skylight books podcast series please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on twitter and instagram also don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations you can find us on podbean itunes and spotify Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.